almost like going back to my childhood. I just wanted to make the coolest water gun. I wanted to make something cool for myself and see if I can commercialize it later when I finish college and save some money because I know engineering and manufacturing will cost a lot of money. So I knew that right now this is cheap. Just doing it to please myself and to see if I can do this. But I just knew that if I polish this up and I wrap it around with some fabric and make it look like a bag and just firm everything up, I think people are gonna just love it. And people are loving it now. I just in awe of the whole exposure of opening up to the world and people are welcoming it with open arms. I was never more proud in my life creating something and having people appreciate that. And I knew all along that day would just not if but just when. It all depends on the strength in me to take it all the way. I could have given up at any part of that journey. There were so many ups and downs and obstacles that I could have just give up and nobody would ever know about Transover, but I did. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Tin Tran, founder of Transrover, the all-in-one golf cart. Trin, one of my favorite things on the Mod Golf Podcast is having our guests telling us their entrepreneurial journey. I have to say that yours is one of the most genuine, heartfelt, and inspiring ones that I've ever heard. So, Tin, with that, thanks for taking the time today, and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Oh, thank you, Colin, for having me. I appreciate you sharing my story to others, and I can't wait to uh, tell you about my journey. You reached out to me through social media, and I'm so glad that you did, because I was not aware of Transrover. I've been at the PGA Merchandise Show for the last couple of years. I did not know what revealed itself there in 2018. I won't do a spoiler there. I'll let you talk about that as part of your story. But to get us started here, Tim, let's go back because, of course, you came here from Vietnam at a young age. So why don't you start with that story of coming to America, and then we'll get into the aha moment that led to the creation of Transrover. Sounds good. I have a big family. My brother, my oldest brother, he is 52. He and my dad escaped the country back in the early 80s. I was two at the time. They went on a fishing boat for a refugee camp and uh, later got sponsored to the U.S. Years later, I was uh, 15. They sponsored us over to uh, unite with them here in the U.S. And that was my mom, my sister, and my three other brothers. Growing up in Vietnam, it was make the most with what you had. The food we ate was just homegrown right in the backyard. The toys I played with are inventions, literally, that I came up with or passed down to me, and I make it better. All the kids, are that's what we do. We just make our own toys because in our village or our town, we can't really afford all the plastic toys that all the other kids in the cities have. So it's natural for me at the young age to see something and make something or fix something, getting hands-on. That is my background. Wow. And I have seen the, the backstory pictures on the Transrover website, and you do have sketches, early mock-ups, prototypes of what you've created. And obviously, from what you just told us there, Tim, being able to tinker and use whatever it is that you had at your disposal uh, allowed you to create things. I'm sure that is one of your many superpowers that, that allows you to uh, create what you've done. So let's move a little bit forward here. So you grew up in California and what was it your dad and your parents were doing when you were when you're young, when you first came over here? When I came here, my dad was ill. He, he had uh, liver cancer and he passed, I think, two years after I came. So was my older brother. He was 25 or so at the time literally just feeding all of us and putting us through school. I always lived here in Sacramento and then moved down to Elk Grove. And I've been here 27 years now. So that's where we are. And that's where I grew up. 
I mean, that's where I stay in America. Of course, of course. So let's take the next step. What was your initial connection or introduction to golf? Because I'm sure golf growing up, even as a young teen in Vietnam, is like from another planet for you. So tell us about that as far as your first golf experience and how then you, you got the golf bug. Totally. I think like all of us, we all have a story, how we got hooked onto the game, right? <laughs> Little did I know that I was, it's an obsession that I can't let go. Like I said, growing up in Vietnam, uh, we play beach soccer, sand soccer, rice paddy soccer. I mean, it's, it's all soccer and badminton and high and seek and whatever random games kids 1 to 15 play. Right. Didn't speak much English, let alone know what golf is. I've never heard of golf my whole life. When I used to watch golf on TV, it was putting me to sleep. You know, it's just like, oh, here's Tiger. He's been a, having a rough day. You know, this is it, this means a lot to him. He got to sink this putt. You know, so I, I just wanted to watch the NBA, and that's where my passion was basketball. Until I hurt right. my ankle, and my friend said, "Why don't we uh, go to the range?" They always been asking me to go to the range to hit golf balls because. They're not really good basketball players, but they're very good golfers. And they always wanted me to go. And uh, I always say no until I hurt my ankle playing basketball and I was healing up. And I wasn't ready to come back in. So I was like, okay, what the heck, let's just go. Because I always make fun of them and say, that's for old people who can't play basketball and who can't be active. (laughs) (laughs) That was me. So I came out there. I was left-handed. I borrowed their clubs and it was awkward holding it. So they said, why don't you go and borrow a left-handed club? So I did. I went in and borrowed this hybrid half wood, half metal thing. That thing was persimmon with a metal plate on it. And I went out. Right. First whack. Right smack in the middle of the club face, and the ball went down. And I asked my friends, you guys see that? Like, what? Like, let let me show you again. And I couldn't do it for the whole time that I was there. I couldn't hit the ball up. (laughs) I was frustrating. So uh, next time they went, I said, call me again. I'll show you guys. And finally, I was able to make more connections. And that's where it started for me. I just wanted to hit that sweet spot so bad. And eventually, I got out there, and it was nothing like I've ever experienced before. You're out there on the golf course. There's no cars around. Barely any homes, it just trees. I felt at home. I felt at peace. And it was just me trying to hit this ball and trying to find the ball and hit the ball again until it goes in the hole. So it was perfect. Right. So I just tried to get better and I got I got hooked. Once I got hooked and I understand the equipment and the needs, I just felt like there was a need for Transrover. There's gotta be something else besides a bag and a push cart to carry all your all your golf gear. And thanks for sharing that with us. And that was leading up to my next question. Uh, as we say in the entrepreneurial world, that aha moment, seeing those pain points or those opportunities. And I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, being an entrepreneur myself, and always telling them, don't create a solution that's looking for a problem. And I've been around the PGA show, and I'm not going to name any, any other groups, but every year I see dozens of products that are doing just that, that are solutions looking for a problem. And, and TransRover is certainly not one that falls into that category. So please start us with the beginning, kind of the infancy of the Transrover journey, where you then decided when you saw that this opportunity is like, why the heck is there a bag, there's a cart, and to be able to bring those together. So what then inspired you rather than just having an idea that you can just talk to friends about over a coffee or a beer to actually then taking that first step to start to create a prototype or consider Transrover in the early days? 
Sure. I think the crazy thing in general about invention is that you don't think that there's anything wrong with that until you come up with a solution. You're like, huh, why didn't we do that <laughs> earlier or right. to begin with? So naturally, when I play golf, I didn't think much about the equipment. I just trying to hit the ball, right? I bought my golf set. It was a Ram Rhythm from Walmart. I think it was $199 with the back, the hybrid, the driver, and the putter, and the back. Everything, nice. the whole thing nice. for 200 bucks. And I thought, man, this is awesome. It's all individually plastic wrapped. I was just going to town with it. So that was my first set. So when I got better and played with better golfers, they say, those are not for you. Those graphite shafts are regular shafts and blah, 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 and spin rates mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever. I was like, okay, what do you recommend? So gave me some names. I went to a Play It Against Sports. I was in college. I didn't have a lot of money. Can't afford golf the Galaxy. I went to Play It Against Sports and looked at some of the golf clubs that they had and picked out a set. I realized that I probably need a new golf bag because it doesn't really go with my golf ram bag. They told me that I need that bag and this bag. I'm like, okay, what about if I want to walk? I see a lot of people walk. What do you recommend? So they have a two-wheeler and a three-wheeler and all sorts. That's when my eyes lit up. It's like, well, you need this bag and you need this car. All these variables and solutions just to carry these 14 clubs and some balls, that doesn't make sense to me. I literally was holding that set of irons that I bought. So I was holding it in my, a palm of my hand. So I'm like, there's got to be something compact enough with wheels where I can just put it all in. If I want to walk, I can. If I want to ride, I can just fold it all up and go from there. So that's my aha moment was that play it again sports. I went home, had some PVC pipes that I was fixing the yard with. And I was like, these clubs go right into these PVC pipes. Let's just start racking them together. Let's get some wheels. Went on Craigslist, bought some used strollers, got some old wheelchairs, started learning how things fold and unfold. And I'm not a mechanical engineer, so I wanted to learn everything about folding mechanism and everything else. So just start hacking stuff out. And it was so much fun. I keep sketching things up and breaking things apart when it doesn't work and anything I can get my hands on. A lot of freebies on Craigslist, just old strollers that's just filthy. <laughs> you know, you go home, you spray it down. You just take what you need and you dump the rest. You can see some of that on my website in my backyard there, just all over the place. Nice. I'm actually looking at the, the pictures right now while you speak. And yeah, the, the early ones that you have there, I just love them. You're obviously very familiar, even though when you started this, the book didn't exist or even the methodology with lean startup methodology, this idea of creating something as a minimal viable product, get it out there and then test it and get it in some people's hands and get some feedback, that feedback loop. So it seems to me that you were creating a minimal viable product before anybody even knew what the heck a minimal viable product was. Sure. And at the time, I didn't know anything about patent search or product infringement. I just went online to look to see if I can buy anything that was like this and there's nothing like that. So, okay, that's safe. That means nobody has anything like that. So let's go for it. So I was just making it almost like going back to my childhood. I just wanted to make the coolest water gun or an air compressed bamboo cannon. That's all I was wanting to do. I wanted to make something cool for myself and see if I can commercialize it later when I finish college and save some money because I know engineering and manufacturing will cost a lot of money. So I knew that right now, this is cheap. Just doing it to please myself and to see if I can do this. When it's polished, I can take the next step. Got it. Got it. Now, so this has been 10 years in the making, pretty much 10 years to the day. I'm looking at your website. I love the way you put this. Your search for the elusive answer began <laughs> on March 2010. So Trans it's, it's, this has been a decade in the going. 
Trans Rover is no childhood toy, I can tell you. It's, it's like Bigfoot, very elusive. Once you think you got it, it's not there. <laughs> you stand it up, it falls over. Once you think, well, it folded yesterday, why wouldn't it fold today? And something else is in the way, and you move one thing, and it affects another thing. So it's ever-evolving, and eventually you just polish it and polish it, and uh, it becomes a marble. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really curious to learn here, Tin, when you were developing all of these design iterations early on, myself being coming from a design and architectural background also, that's kind of my happy place. What I've learned as an entrepreneur over the years is you need to put it out there besides your friends and family to see if there's an actual market and there's demand for this in a way it's kind of putting your baby out there and with the possibility that some people may think your baby is ugly for lack of a better (laughs) term, which could be really hurt, right? As far as your ego, but you have to put that out there. How long did it take you, let's say from March, 2010 then, to start to get the confidence to put it out there or have other people that you didn't necessarily know to then realize I'm really onto something here. If I can find that right price point and the unit cost, you know, all those other things that have happened over the last 10 years as a product to bring to market. What gave you confidence to, to put that out there? Did you get really good feedback from people that you didn't know to say that they would love to see something like this developed? That is a very good question. I never thought of it that way. I think the whole time I was doing it, to be honest with you, I never thought once about the money. It was Mm. to me a hobby where I felt like if I finish this and I have it, then I'm going to go do something with it. But until then, I'm not showing it to nobody, right? I don't want anybody to eat in my heart. I knew I'm onto something special. And I told my wife, if somebody break into my house and steals my prototype and they realize they don't know what to do with it, so they want to buy it off, it's got to be millions of dollars. So that's the only time I thought about money, right? If somebody wants to buy off my idea and I wouldn't even sell it at the time because I felt like I was growing a very special fruit tree, right? And this green, it doesn't have fruits yet, but I'm just keep watering it and nurturing it until the day that it comes. I'm, I'm not thinking about the money. I'm just worrying about the healthy tree. And I kept that hobby and passion burning every day. Every time I, I have a chance, I go to my backyard and it was cold. In the winter, I move it to my garage and have the lights on and just tinker. And I think five or six years later, I had a solid playable prototype. That's when I call my friend. I don't want to say his name, but he was the first among all my golf friends who was not inviting me to the driving range back in the days. This is new. Right. Uh, I showed it to him <laughs> and he was like, it's kind of unique, but I don't know. It looks harsh. I don't want to put my clubs in there. It's going to scratch everything. I'm like, I get it. I mean... It's a prototype. Just look at the thing as a whole. He didn't think much of it. Gotcha. But I just knew that if I polish this up uh, and I wrap it around with some fabric and make it look like a bag and just firm everything up, I think people are going to just love it. And people are loving it now. So uh, my vision is finally realized. Uh, I just love the story and we got much more to tell about your journey here. I love the metaphor you use also talking about uh, the growth of a tree with Transrover. And I talk about this with entrepreneurs too. And the other aspect of that is a root system or a foundation that you need to build. And I've learned that in entrepreneurship too, that if you try to go too fast, too quick, and don't build that support system or that base of knowledge and partnerships, that it will tip over. And you've actually built that over time. I need to pause for a second just to remind our audience here and myself as entrepreneurs that you don't have to go a million miles an hour to beat everyone else to market and and those type of things. That Sometimes it does take many, many years to actually get to a certain point. And if you just keep going, and sometimes you have to park it on the side because you need to focus on some other things, whether it's family or you need to make a little more money, and then you can always continue on with what you're doing. It sounds like over this 10 years that you've done just that. 
Totally. And the whole time I had a job, I had a career in marketing and graphic design. I worked for multiple ad agencies doing beautiful graphic design for NBA teams, Rolex watches, TV commercials, billboards, you name it. And uh, I settled my career at a privately owned company. We were really big at the time. Uh, we were doing about $2 million in sales a day. And I was the head of marketing and graphic person for the company there managing all our collateral. So I was there for nearly 10 years before I told my wife that, hey, I got to take this to production. So I'm going to take it all the way. And that means I have to give up my job. We talked about that quite a few times. But when the time came, I think she knew that I was ready to do so. And we were looking at our finances and where she is with her job. And she can work and I can just cut back our expenses and just flex for a while and see how far I can take it. So it's been three years since I quit my job. And here we are. Yeah. Well, let, let's back up to about that point, because you talked about the first couple of years here of polishing it to a marble, as you put it here with TransRover. It sounds to me that a turning point or a big inflection point for you to really move the needle is what happened at the 2018 PGA Merchandise Show in Orlando. Could you please tell us about that experience, what unfolded there, and maybe a few of the things leading up to that of where you heard about that and thought that would be a good place to, to show off TransRover? Being a golf fan, you know, you watch the golf channel. And I think 2016, 17, I started learning about the PGA show. Even before that, I would see it on the golf channel. And around that time, they really hype it up. So I'm like, one of these days, I'm going to book a booth and I'm going to show off TransRover to the world. So when we had our final prototype, I'm getting goosebumps just, just talking about it now. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. But once I put it on the website, load up some pictures, and I was really nervous. You know, we didn't have a website. Nobody knew besides my friend that I showed the prototype to about TransRover. So I created a profile with that. You have to upload some photos onto their exhibitor list platform. One week or so before the show, the producer of the Golf Channel reached out to me personally and emailed me saying that we love what you created there. We think that it's very interesting and we want to share that in our segment during the live broadcast on the Golf Channel. Are Amazing. you willing to take us up on that? And I was like, let me think about it. All right, thought about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I only had one prototype. Okay, It took us, I think, three months with my vendor to build the prototype. And it was really falling apart. Only I can baby it and show it the way that it works by myself. I try to have another person do it. It's hard. Folding and unfolding looks easy when I do it. But if another person try to do it, it won't do it. So I, that's what I explained to him. I say, absolutely. I just took him up on it. And then I say, why, why don't we meet up when we get to the show? So we did. And when he got there, he went by my booth and checked it out. I showed it to him and he was really trying to do it himself. And I thought he was just curious. But it comes down to how they set up the show is that they don't want me on the show. They wanted their host to show it off because of conflict of interest or whatever contracts that they have with other manufacturers. They don't want another. Okay person on the golf channel that is not in the circle showing off their product. Well, what about a Callaway right. golf bag? What about so-and-so push cart? When he was trying to do it and he couldn't get it to fold and unfold, he said, well, I don't think it's going to work. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, that's it for me. You know, I was so I was so ready to show this off to the world. And I, what what is a better way than a live segment on the golf channel? So he said this. He said, "But I love your story. I'm going to go back and talk to my team and see if we can get you to be on the show." And looks to me like you can do this very easily. And there's no way my host, I think it was Gary Williams, he's good, but I don't think he can get this done either. And I don't want it to look bad on live TV. 
So we're going right. to try to get you up there and see if you can do it. But I'm going to send you some memos and some talking points and things that you need to be aware of. So he gave me the whole rundown. Don't talk bad about people. Just talk about Taz Rover. <laughs> uh, right, don't right. do this. Don't do that. That's the first time that I was media briefed. I've never been on TV before for my whole life. The morning of, we showed up, brought the trans rover over, and I was pulled to a room, and they put mic on me. They put makeup on me. There was three ladies there doing my touch-up, and I was like, wow, this is real. This is happening. So yeah. um, and mic, and then they put a little thing in the back of my belt. So I was talking. I was like, can you hear me now? And they say, no, we'll turn it on at the van later. I'm like, van? Where's the van? <laughs> <laughs> just so naive of the whole process. I was just in awe, you know. Right, so, right. Uh, you can watch that segment. I was nervous as hell, you know. So sure, I was nervous, and it's just overwhelming. You just think about the journey that it took for me to get there to have a final prototype. Before that prototype, I pretty much empty every single dollar I have into the project. I have to hire professional engineering. I have to pay the vendor to produce the parts. And I even invested in my own 3D printer, printing the parts and making prototypes. So it was a long, long way to get there. And we were so close to getting to production that it was a good moment for us. But I got up there and I think I delivered a good pitch. And I couldn't sleep the night before. <laughs> but it was good. It was good. I, so I that love that bad. story. So. Yeah, so obviously it went so well that what unfolded then the next couple of days at the PGA show? Well, Golf Digest came over to my booth, did an interview with me and wrote a piece about the Trans Rover. And then later, I think it was Forbes who uh, picked up on that story. And I just in awe of the whole exposure of opening up to the world and people are welcoming it with open arms. I was never more proud in my life creating something and having people appreciate that. And I knew all along that day would just not if, but just when. It all depends on the strength in me to take it all the way. I could have given up at any part of that journey. I could have given up. There were so many ups and downs and obstacles that I could have just give up and nobody would ever know about Transrover. But I did. There was a special award that we're giving out at the PGA Merchandise Show from uh -huh. the United Inventors Association, and they awarded us the most innovative product for the show for that year. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and I that's do. what I was trying I, to get. I was trying yeah. to pull that out of you there. You're being just so <laughs> humble there that I, could, I couldn't actually get you to go, yeah, we won this big award and blah, blah, blah. It's like you're <laughs> getting to know you, just the warmth of your personality. And you sound like such a gracious human that it was like the last thing that you mentioned that you won that award. And that, that's a big deal. And congratulations on that. That's totally. And, and to me, I wasn't really looking for anything. I literally was there at the show just to show it off to people and talk to people in person and ask them for their opinion so that I can take back, do my homework and polish it up some more and roll out with production. So having all that, it was just unplanned and it was beyond my dream. I was wow. very, very grateful and I can't wait to get back. I was going to go back this year, but we're in the midst of production and shipment and chaos. <laughs> I have to cancel that trip, but uh, we can't go to, can't wait to get back out there next year to show it off to people again. Well, hopefully if you're there next year, I, I was not there this year because I've been behind the scenes with our own golf product that we're going to be bringing to market fairly soon, but uh, Good for you. we won't talk too much about that. But I've had the pleasure uh, of being at the PGA show the previous two years, speaking as part of their educational series about entrepreneurship and innovation in the golf industry, uh, and also having a panel discussion that I've called the Golf Disruptors Panel, where I've had four of my previous guests that are at the show come for a panel discussion. And if you and I both have the good fortune of being there next January, I would love to have you on as one of our panelists there. 
that would be great. Can't tell your story enough. So after the show, once you came back home and now between Forbes and uh, some of the other articles that you had to help amplify the signal and, and get more amazing coverage for you, what were the next steps for you? I understand you then ramped up with a Kickstarter campaign. So perhaps you can totally. tell us a little bit about that journey. Totally. And how are you now scaling up or even production uh, and the team you're putting together? Because now you've got like a lot of startups. You actually have that great problem to have and that's okay, what do I do for the next steps? How do we fund that? Do we actually get investors? Do we actually do debt financing? Do I give away part of the company so that I dilute my equity stake in that, but that can help me move forward? So all those hundreds of balls that you're juggling in the air now, Tim, maybe you can tell us what transpired after the PGA show in January 2018 and uh, and where you are now. Sure. So after the PGAO, without a doubt, it really solidified the effort that I put in, validated it. Right. So we have to go. We're going to do this and I'm going to get some investors and I'm going to go to production. I'm going to produce this thing. We're going to sell this thing and we're going to make some money. And that's the first time literally I think about money because I think I have exhausted enough of my finances that I felt like I earned it to make a little bit back. Uh, like I told you, the whole journey before that, it was never about money. It was more or less if I can do this. And it was a challenge for myself to see if I can do it. Right. If it was about money, I would have given up because everything that I do costs money. <laughs> and there was no money in working on a backyard and your garage on prototypes. There's no money in there. Right. So even before that, I felt like I had to run a Kickstarter campaign because I didn't know how to go about finding investors. So I heard about crowdfunding and you have a good product, you can sell it, take pre-orders and get that money to go make your production batch. So the idea was fantastic. And I think a lot of people are doing that these days. If I have a product, they go up there, test the product to see if people want to buy it. If they do, they'll give you the money, you take the money and you go make it. Win-win situation. Yeah. So that was a good springboard for us, taking advantage of all that media exposure. After that, before we launched, came back to town all proud, right? All proud, all lit up like a, like a light bulb. Yeah. I went home, tell my family, tell my friends. And a lot of my friends, for some reason, see the rerun and saw me on the Golf Channel like, holy shit. I didn't know it was that big. <laughs> you know? So uh, sorry my, for my friends. So I um, put a letter together and reach out to two news stations that I watch, uh, Fox News, Sacramento here, and Good Day Sacramento. And sure enough, both of them took me on to the air. One of them you can see there on the video. Um, they just literally sent the news crew van to my house to uh, document my journey from the wooden prototypes to the metal to the 3D printed to molded pieces that you can see up there. So that was great. After that, we launched Kickstarter. Two weeks into it, we got the funding needed and we sold more after that. And that's how much we literally were short to go to production. So uh, we went and here we are. I have a warehouse, I have an office space, and we've been here less than a year now and just looking to grow the business from here. I'm not looking to run or fly. I'm still trying to build my reputation as the company who make a good product and good customer service and make sure people are happy with their product. And if they have any questions, I'll be here to answer each of them myself. And from that, I want a trial batch just to make sure that people are understanding the product, if they're using it right, if they have any questions. If something works, something doesn't, then we'll make adjustments and uh, improve it down the road. But so far, man, <laughs> everybody's in love with it. So, Oh, it's, uh, it's, no, it's great. It, re it really is. 
Uh, I had a question with Kickstarter because I have quite a few friends that have done Kickstarter campaigns. We actually did an Indiegogo a couple of years ago in something in the golf realm, but unrelated to actually product or, or hardware. I just wanted to ask you, how refined was your business model in the sense that you knew how much each unit would cost to actually produce and then setting your pricing for that on Kickstarter? Because one of the, the unfortunate things with Kickstarters that exceed and go way over their limit, they, they fill it out like 10 times. It's like, well, that's great. But if it costs you $50 to actually manufacture the thing and you're selling it for $40, the fact you actually just sold 10,000 of them, guess what? <laughs> You've yeah, lost $10 on each one of those. Yeah. So one of the questions I want to ask you here, and I will, as when we do finish, up, I, I do want to have you share with our listeners, especially the ones that are entrepreneurs out there and fledgling entrepreneurs, some uh, cautionary tales and some tips and tricks and, and nuggets of wisdom. But perhaps just sticking with the Kickstarter for a second, did you just jump into it or did you have a fairly good idea of what your pricing would be so you didn't fall into that trap? It's like, woohoo, we oversold by five times. It's like, uh-oh, now we're going to lose money on all of them. So how, how did you work through that so you got it so it was good enough? Uh, look for clarity for that without demanding certainty, which you couldn't get as far as your, your pricing model. So what, what was your approach there? Well, lucky me, I have the uh, vendor that I've been working with on the prototype. That is going to be my manufacturer, right? So for any of you guys inventing something out there, if you have that relationship with the person who is helping you with the design and potentially making your production run, it is good because they will understand your product and there's not going to be a lot of surprises. They say, well, we didn't thought about the bearings. We didn't think about the springs. Uh, that's going to be stainless steel versus metal, this and that. They understand everything that you need. And for my product, I'm not making a bottle opener. This is hundreds of parts that have plastic, soft goods, silicon, rubber, everything that you can think of in terms of material comes together in one. And it's very complex, very expensive to produce. So I wanted to get everything figured out. Where am I sourcing the parts? Every single vendor who supplied the parts, you need to talk to them. You need to get a quote from them, get it on paper and tell them exactly what you're getting. Don't tell them this is kind of like what I need. Give them a 3D drawing, right? Don't be afraid. You have your patents to protect you. Don't be afraid to send them 3D files for quotes because you're going to get accurate quotes and be honest with your quantities because that can change also. So once you have everything firm up, I literally have good old Excel spreadsheet, right? Say, uh, <laughs> if we sell if we sell 100 units, what happens? If we sell 200 units, what happens? 500, what happens? When do we stop selling? I mean, am I able to fill 1,000 order on Kickstarter? So you have to be realistic. I think a lot of companies who start out, like me, don't have a lot of help. You just buy yourself with a product. It looks great. Maybe you have the money and you can go hire some help, but just be realistic. Like how much can you crank out and can your vendor handle that? It was a calculated move for me. I was comfortable selling as many as 2,000 units. No problem because the product will be assembled and all you got to do is just slap a label on and send it off. So it wasn't that bad for me. I also ran an Indiegogo campaign shortly after the Kickstarter and it did fine as well. So I don't want it to be in the situation where, great, we just made a million dollars on Kickstarter. They take 10% and it's going to cost us a million and a half to produce. <laughs> you know, Now I have a hole. Right. Not making any money, you're just losing money. And I think there are a lot of campaigns like that. Uh, if you do your research on Kickstarter, you will see there's a lot of people who fail for that reason. They didn't. Uh, you, know, you look at the famous one, it's the coolest cooler. You remember that? 
Yeah, I do. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, they sell 4.3 million. <laughs> Got a blender. That's right. To, the guy wanted to raise, uh, I think, 20,000 and ended up selling four point something. I got to look it up. It was in the millions. So yes. he couldn't fill the order, which is too expensive to produce. And I feel bad for him because it was a great product. If he was selling it for 100 more than what he listed, people would still buy it. So that's my long or short answer <laughs> for you. Yeah, yeah, and and that that is so key for entrepreneurs, and I know myself too, coming from that design side and having to learn that piece, or even more so, bringing in people, advisors that understand that piece as far as the financial modeling and that break-even point and all those other things that is, believe me, was foreign to me even a couple of years ago, and that's just crucial for startups to succeed because, as as you and I both know, the numbers are kind of grim that at almost nine out of ten startups fail for a multitude of reasons. But one of the ones is, is the fact they run out of financing or they get their sequencing incorrect, or they don't even understand their pricing model and also their customers. I love the fact that you've put your head down and build the things that you can and do as much as you can yourself, but you're not afraid to reach out and ask for help, which you need to do as an entrepreneur. That ego-fueled thing that sadly most men have rather than women, that no, no one can do it as well as me and I have all the answers. And it sounds like what I could see here, you've reached out to people that have expertise that allow you to propel TransRover forward and to get to you to the point where you are now. Totally. And TransRover is only as good as the people that I find that can help me with TransRover. You know, like um, Steve Jobs said, uh, I can't play the instruments, but uh, I know what good music is and I can compose something along that line. That's how I felt the whole way. I just got to find the people that can actually do this for me and do a good job. Same thing with where I am now. All my customers out there, they are going to be my ambassadors. So I want them to really understand the product be there to answer all the questions that they have, the stories that they have to explain, the obstacles that they have to overcome when selling this product. It looks awkward. <laughs> it takes a few steps to fold and unfold. People just said, you know, I, I'll stick with my bag. So we're going to have that huddle to get over for a long, long time. So I'm confident that we will get there. It's just like any other product when it's new. People tend to just default back to what they're accustomed to or what they're used to. They do. And you've probably noticed that. Well, I know you have because you've been on this journey that in order to convert people into customers and believers and ambassadors, that the solutions that are already out there, it has to be more than just a little bit better, right? For them to convert or forget about what they've done before, whether it's actually software, hardware, an experience, or in this case here, product design of the pain points that you're solving between taking up too much room and all the added pieces that you have. You've got an all-in-one elegant solution here that I do believe over time that as you get, I know I'm talking with my hands here because we're on a podcast here (laughs) with words, but you're familiar with that, what's called that technology or product adoption curve. Going up vertically, you actually have the number of people and then over in the other horizontal plane, you've got over time and it just works out that it's this camel hump in the middle that at the beginning, you've got the people that are the early pioneers and the early, the innovators, those people you have right now in that next group, that 33% of the population 
is what we call those early adopters. It's already proved out and people love it and they're in there. And then that next third that is kind of go over the camel's hump on the other side is where let's say Facebook is or even you know an iPhone or what smartphones are the late majority of people. And then on the back end, you've got the few that are called the laggards that with a phone, if you still can use a rotary dial on the hook to your wall with a big curly cord on it, people would still be using that if that was an option. You'll always have those few people on the back end. You're at that early adopter phase and it sounds like you already have a lot of real fans and people that love what you're doing and love the product that you're providing. And I love them. (laughs) It's almost like I felt like I'm a chef. I'm creating this dish and people are like, I don't know about that. But the moment they eat it, I'm like, oh man, yeah, I got to tell my friends about this. So that's where I am. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Hey, just wanted to ask you this question. So I noticed that you do have a patent. Is that on the system that you have? So if you decided to go that route, did you find that was something you really needed as a barrier to entry so that I won't even name the other golf companies, but everybody else that creates bags and, and carts and everything else that they wouldn't just then try to rip off your ideas. So you've managed to protect yourself in a way here with your patent? Yeah, pretty much along the way once i get it to work and function i immediately spend the money on on legal fees getting the right patent attorney to help me look at this uh, at every angle and see how we can protect this invention so i have multiple patents not just one from top to bottom every single design element there has been protected i spent a lot of time on this and i felt like it's my own creation i did not copy anybody it literally is from the ground up with my bare hands that's the way I saw it and I want to protect it. So those are what the patents are for. Love it. And you've been seeing here, just the design solution that you can fit two of them side by side on all riding carts, fits snugly and easily into a trunk, unfolds really quickly here. I've seen the videos with you doing it. And like I said, I'm a bit of a design snob coming from that architectural background. And the design aesthetic of this is is really, really nice. You've done a great job here. And with so many different parts moving here, it would be very easy to make something that would functionally work, but that would be hard on the eyes. And this certainly is not. It'll be like a Frankenstein. You know, it, it could go that way. It's not at all. Actually, what you've created here is a very elegant solution. So congratulations on that, Tim. Well, thank you. Welcome. Um, Hey, as we finish up here, I just want to come back to the earlier thought that I had for the entrepreneurs that are out there. Can you give, let's say, just a couple of tips or advices, things that you've done that necessarily haven't worked? Because we know as entrepreneurs, it's not a straight line. It's that it's more like a spaghetti up, down and backwards and sideways. And that's part of the the journey, which can be lonely and, and isolating sometimes. Not to turn this into a bummer here, but entrepreneurship is hard. Your 10-year journey, could you perhaps provide a a couple of nuggets for people there to inspire them and just uh, share some of your thoughts there? Totally. I think when you have an idea, keep that idea big. Don't limit yourself because that idea can evolve, right? Get hands-on. Understand your idea. Don't think that it's going to make you money because you have that idea. I think you need to put the work in realizing that idea and coming through with the idea, and then you can start thinking about the money. It can help, but the moment you have the idea, you think, I'm going to be a millionaire. I mean, naturally, anybody who has an idea, that's what they think about, money. For me, it was there, but it was never a factor. I say, the money will come if I get this done right. And you better have it in you, that vision and that idea really, really up there. Otherwise, the money factor is not going to carry you through the obstacles and the bumps and the setbacks. You're going to just dry out or you're going to run out of money or you know you're not going to make any money anytime soon and you're going to fail. So just make sure you put the work in, get dirty, do everything you can in in your power to do as much as you can on your own before spending the money to making this a reality because you will dry out 
if I had this idea and I immediately tell some people and get some rich people to be on board, Trans Rover would not be here today. There is no way. I didn't spend enough time to develop the product and people who I hire would not see my vision the way I did. And that vision did not happen overnight. It took years and years of trial and error and a lot of accidents. I can give you an example. I was adamant about having a third handle where you can lift up Trans Rover where the push bar is now. And I had to have it there. I just felt like that's going to protect the club when it falls over in the back. That handle is going to protect the driver from hitting the ground and this and that. It makes it easy to lift in and out. But it just makes the whole unit take up a lot more space in the box. So when I shipped the prototype from here to my vendor to work on, the handle actually broke off and I was devastated. But then I realized that you can just stick your hand into the cup holder there to carry the cart. And it's hidden in there that you don't need a handle. So if it didn't break, then I would have been stuck with that handle. And that's what I have to deal with. We make various size and shape. We haven't thought about making it collapsible so that you can save space. Ideas don't just come out polished. They take time. They take massaging. And they take good fortune and accidents to happen. No, those are fantastic pieces of advice there. So thank, thank you so much, Tim, for sharing those. And yeah, for all the entrepreneurs out there, especially that last one of the story that you mentioned. And sometimes it is something that accidentally happens that uh, sheds light on a design solution there. So there is no failure. That's one of the issues that we always have in entrepreneurship. And to be honest, even with our school system that we have, this stigma and negativity attached to failure. And as entrepreneurs, both of us included here, Tim, that uh, we've had to shed that stigma long ago that failure is going to happen and out of failure in this case the example you just gave there presented a, a design solution then or an opportunity then that allowed you to move forward so totally and that and that solution would never come up on a uh, on a sketch on paper i would never sketch that up no way i would have said yeah we got to work that in one way or another so you know like that one oil painting i think it was ross it was on the public channel um, bob ross he always paint yeah. and there's and there was a squirrel that's on his shoulder and he just you do a live painting segment big okay. afro yeah his his quote his quote you should look it up he's super brilliant his paintings are beautiful and he just started with a blank piece of canvas and half an hour later is a beautiful piece of art and he always tells you during his things, oh, these are not mistakes. They're just happy accidents. So that stuck with me. <laughs> they're not happy mistakes. accidents. They're you not mistakes. They're just we'll happy accidents. We'll embrace that. Love that. Well, why don't we finish up with a, a Bob Ross quote there? It's funny. My, my wife, who has curly hair uh, for Halloween last year, went as Bob Ross and uh, she actually crushed it. It was, it was so amazing. So you knew who I was talking so, about the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we know right. Bob Ross. Uh, absolutely. Okay. We will uh, embrace the spirit of Bob Ross with that final quote here. But before I do let you go, Tin, please let all of our listeners know where they can learn more about Trans Rover on social media, uh, where you are now, where they can order or pre-order. So yeah, give us some information of how people can find out more about Trans Rover. Sure. Everything you need to know is on transrover.com. T-R-A-N-S-R-O-V-E-R.com. And that name, I had to fight really hard from another car company that rhymes with Rover. <laughs> uh-huh. They didn't want me uh-huh. to use the Trans Rover because it rhymes with their car, the Anz Rover. You know what I mean? I do. Uh, we, we fought really hard and I fought them off and there we are. I don't want to pat myself in the back, but that was a big one for me because Tran is my last name and Rover is my yes. product. And when we had the car prototype sitting on the ground, it looks like a Rover because it was leaning to the side. It couldn't stand straight up. And I was like, that looks like a moon rover. So that's how it stuck with me. And that's how I came up with the name. Ah. So 
transrover.com and I'm all over Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just type in the keyword transrover and you see me there. Good stuff. And we will be promoting you, of course, on all those social media platforms with this episode when it comes out. And as I always do in the show notes and also in your bio, I will include links for our listeners to all the things you just mentioned there to make it very easy for them to find out more about you. So Tin Tran, thanks so much for joining me today and telling us about your happy accident with Trans Rover and your story and your journey. You embody the best of entrepreneurship. And I thank you for reaching out to me on social media so that you found me and we've been able to have this conversation and we can share it with all of our listeners. So thanks so much for spending the time on the Mod Golf Podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you. All right. You take care. Bye for now. Take care. Bye, Colin. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tin Tran, founder of Trans Rover, the all-in-one golf cart. If you'd like to learn more, go to our episode show page where we've included additional links and content. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Golf Genius Software, for help making the Mod Golf Podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcast fix. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.